Hallelujah. Father, we have so much to sing about, so much to praise you for, so much to be thankful and to express our heart of gratitude for the miracle working power of the gospel of Jesus Christ accomplished in time, moving heaven and earth to save for himself and elect people from the throes of sin and death and destruction to ransom and redeem souls and then knit them together in the bonds of sweet, unbreakable unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, wherein Christ is their reward and in him and the gospel, they have the keys to heaven. Lord, this is what we have. This is our inheritance because of Christ and what he has shared with us. In his blood, we have redemption. And in his resurrection, we have the assurance of glory eternal. And in his kingdom, we have citizenship and the hope that in the end, all things will be set in accordance with your redemptive purposes. And we will be joined with the saints who have gone before and those who have yet to come into your kingdom, a great throng and a mighty waterfall of voices who echo their praises forever without end. Praise to the Lamb who was slain, who has done the impossible as far as man is concerned, who has bridged the chasm between the holy God and the sinner by the power of the working of Jesus Christ, our redeeming Savior, our incarnate and faithful high priest, our forever sovereign and ruler and Lord. We thank you for these truths, these promises. And as we turn now to your word, where the record of these things has unfolded in time, I pray that our hearts would blossom with more joy and application as a consequence of your word expounded, not by the ability of the one who brings it, but by the Spirit using these means unto the praise of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> well, let us rejoice together with thankful hearts in the grace and opportunity that we have to set our soul's attention on the record of God's glory revealed in Holy Scripture. Today we turn to our Genesis series, which is winding down now as we approach the end of the last chapter, chapter 50. And on this journey that we have taken in understanding the Lord revealing himself and his purposes to save a people through the pages of early revelation. Our hearts are drawn forward in progress as we see more clearly a picture of the Messiah coming forth from the pages. And this is true even at the end of the book where the ministry of Joseph comes to an end, but it also reaches a crescendo with the last word of Genesis being grace, if you will, and thus the title for this morning's message, Grace, the Last Word. Here in Genesis 50, one more time, his brothers come to him with an appeal that their lives might be spared for the judgment they know they deserve because of their prior crimes against him. And instead of what they may expect, the heavy hand of vengeance, they receive instead the forgiveness of grace. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the gospel summarized and featured in the conclusion of the book of Genesis. I think we have maybe two more sermons in this uh, book. One will be an overview, Lord willing. But today we begin to see some of the uh, concluding words and thoughts that the author Moses leaves us with and how it sets us up for more revelation of God's work in saving a people in the future. With that introduction and your heart standing in reverence for the word of God as you're able, would you rise for the reading of the scriptures today? Listen as God's word is proclaimed in Genesis 50, 
verses 15 through 21, here is the holy word of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Listen closely uh, this morning as in between the lines of this text, we see that the author sets us up for a glorious fulfillment of what humanity cries out for in the coming Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Note the attitude of the brothers. Now that Jacob, their father, has finally died, from their perspective, nothing stands between Joseph and his revenge, or so his brothers feared. <clears throat> I would submit to you that of all the riveting events in the life of Joseph, you think of all the sensational things that God did in and through his life and ministry, the prophetic dreams from when he was 17, fulfilled in due time, to the betrayal of his family, selling him into slavery in Egypt, to his rise to international prominence from the injustice of an Egyptian prison, all the way to his world-rescuing famine policies, chapter 37 through 50, at least most of that, those passages cover the biography of Joseph. But today I submit to you that among all of these, perhaps the most profound of all, the most riveting of events in Joseph's life we just read today, this turn of events at the death of Jacob and the appeal of his brothers is perhaps the most compelling. It's a twist in the plot. It's a surprise at the end of the book and at the end of the life of both Jacob and as it's recorded, Joseph. The biography of Joseph reads, I suggest, as a classic riveting revenge tale with a redemptive twist at its closing chapter and thus proclaiming the gospel with jaw-dropping literary force. The end of this classic revenge tale with this redemptive twist, I suggest, proclaims the gospel with jaw-dropping literary force. Now, one of my favorite classics to read when I was younger and my son Israel's just finished was called The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a classic revenge tale. And it struck me this week, as I was studying, that there are some parallels between these two stories. So I sat down with Israel to give me a little refresher, and this is what we came up with. The Count, like Joseph, experiences a near-death and a virtual resurrection event. In that story, like Joseph, he's falsely accused, unjustly incarcerated, and basically receives a death sentence to die in prison. Well, with the help of some fortunate events, he finds a way to escape, and after many years passed, his fortunes turn and he's able to uh, deliver himself from 
the prison, and then he finds his way to a treasure, a treasure beyond compare. Um, and like Joseph then, this treasure, fortune, granted him untouchable power to avenge his enemies and unimaginable wealth to fund his every dream and desire. So, while we are carried along eagerly with a plot line of justice, celebrating the last words, or more precisely, or we are carried along in, in this plot line of justice, if you will, uh, celebrating the last word, which is justice, or more precisely in the case of the Count of Monte Cristo, vengeance, uh, we, the, we, there's something satisfying to our flesh as, this, as there's this great retribution in the end. The Count of Monte Cristo is able to finally get back, get even, and, and with the heavy hand of vengeance, repay his enemies for what they did to him. There's something satisfying to that, at least in a short-sighted sense, as we read the story. But right here, after the riches and power are acquired, this is where the two stories diverge. We are jolted by the story of Joseph, because instead of taking matters into his own hands when he had ample opportunity, both power and wealth to do so, that is not what we see. But instead of what we might wish for in the flesh, all things being equal in our own experience, we might do the same. That is, in our sin, the Count of Monte Cristo, we more relate to than Joseph. In contrast, Joseph acts in a different way entirely. Once rising to riches and acquiring power, his story crescendos with a paradox of forgiveness. Joseph's story preaches the following. Those who wield the greatest power of grace are those who've endured the greatest wrongs and abuses and have the power of retribution within their grasp. In the extended biography of Joseph, from chapter 37 to 50, there stands a redemptive framework. What are we witnessing here? Joseph's faith in a future Messiah who will pay for his sins and the sins of his brother, brothers, setting him free to grant grace of forgiveness instead of vengeance. What's the difference between vengeance and justice? That's a great question. What's the difference between vengeance and justice? Vengeance is taking justice into your own hands and in so doing, breaking the law of God. Justice is trusting God's means and God's ways to avenge on his terms and in his own time. This is not to say that no human agent is ever, no human being is never an agent of God's justice. Absolutely they are. Romans 13, 12 tell us this, the government does not bear the sword in vain. They're God's minister of justice, so to speak. But in, insofar as the government follows the law of God, they are a minister of justice. But insofar as they break the law, they become corrupted by vengeance and other things. And the same is the case for the individual. God has given us means and God has given us a law whereby He, according to His time and according to His terms, will settle the scores of evil in this world. Joseph knows this acutely and is a profound testimony to his faith in the Lord and even when he had the ability to do so, he trusted and feared God over him so as not to take matters into his own hands. That's just one of the lessons from Joseph's life. Let me give you a heading as we see the close of Genesis here in three categories or with three notes to take away. Genesis closes with, number one, an appeal for mercy, verses 15 through 18, from Joseph's brothers. Number two, an assurance of pardon or forgiveness for Joseph's brothers from himself, verses 19 through 21. And then in the context, 
Number three, let's consider the last patriarch. The book of Genesis closes with Jacob, technically, I suppose, the last patriarch featured in the scriptures. What is the significance of this? Let us consider, first of all, an appeal for mercy from Joseph's brothers. You see, Jacob has died, and this creates a crisis for the brothers. When Joseph's brothers saw, verse 15, that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Let us consider Jacob's intercession. So long as Jacob was alive, the brothers trusted that the presence of the father, the patriarch, stood between Joseph taking action, taking retribution, which he might well do against their crimes or against them on uh, on account of their crimes against him. So long as Jacob was alive, in other words, the brothers trusted him to intercede on their behalf. Jacob's intercession, that is respect for the father that might prevent Joseph from taking out his anger on his brothers, so long as Jacob was alive, there stood between the brothers, so they thought, and Joseph, someone to intercede on their behalf. But this intercession of Jacob, this peace that Jacob brought, was interrupted by death. As soon as he died, the fear of no intercessor, no mediator, now troubled to the point of desperation the brothers of Joseph. Now, this is, it speaks well of Jacob, by the way, despite his lackluster track record, which we have noted in the record of Jacob's leadership. He was, we see, nevertheless, a stabilizing pillar in his household. Respect for the father leader, the appointed person, that God has, had placed to carry forth, to hold forth the torch of the covenant. God had spoken to Jacob, he'd revealed to him, himself to him at various altar locations, and he had given him charge of the family's spiritual direction, so to speak. This was part and parcel of his role and calling as patriarch. And this was a stabilizing force in his household. The weak will and the weak faith of Joseph's brothers is evident here. Nevertheless, their fears were tempered by the presence of their father. There was something of a mutual respect and assurance that the patriarch brought to the family. But with his death came uncertainty and the concerns that the brothers had, this overwhelming uh, fear and anxiety, that the family breakdown and the goodwill would die with their father. Joseph no longer needed, in their minds, to restrain his anger against his brothers for the sake of their aging father, he was dead. Jacob had died, and with him, the last obvious reason to spare his brothers the just retribution they deserved. That's what jo Joseph's brothers feared. Jacob had died, and with him, with his death, so also died the last obvious reason for Joseph, in spite of his power and position, to spare his brothers the just retribution that they deserved. This speaks to Jacob's role uh, as a sim symbolic role, as a patriarch, as an intercessor and mediator. It's here illustrated. It speaks to the virtue of peacemaking. We can apply Jacob's role in this regard 
to the virtues of standing in between and seeking to bring a, a role of peace at, and uh, to speak on behalf of the bigger picture of God's purposes. Parents do this in interceding in their children's conflicts, so to speak. We imagine how our own household sometimes might get out of control if that moderating force of parents stepping in to calm the uh, overreaction of one and, and to uh, encourage another to forgive as there is different conflicts that arise within our homes. And Jacob, even in his aging years, provided something of this, a buffer between the sons, but this was a limited role. Something more was needed to assure the brothers that they would be safe from what they knew they deserved. What we see here in Jacob's brother, in Jacob's sons, Joseph's brothers, is a projection. So they knew that they were guilty and they lacked assurance of pardon. And this was projected onto their relationship with their brother. And now that Jacob has gone, it created a crisis in their souls. Who will intercede for them now? Who will intercede? Well, they were in desperate they were in desperate need of a mediator, somebody to go between. And so what do they do? They seek a mediator in the form of a message, presumably a messenger, verse 16. So they, Joseph's brothers, they sent a message to Joseph, desperate for a mediator. Why didn't they go themselves? They wanted someone to intercede, to represent them. Jacob's gone. Perhaps we'll send a message. We'll go before the bearing the wishes of our father. And we don't know exactly if these were the words that Jacob said. We can interpret that his heart might have agreed at least. Nevertheless, they, create, they write this message, they send a messenger, and they say, your father gave us this command before he died. So on behalf of our father, and in his honor, please spare our lives. Say to Joseph, verse 17, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. With no obvious mediator, desperate for someone to go between, they send this message to Joseph, the one who had the power and authority to do something about their sin. Perhaps in this last desperate effort, someone to represent them, they can, that uh, Joseph might be influenced, his heart might soften, and via this third party, they make their appeal. As we see this account of the patriarch's death and the vulnerable and fearful position it puts their brothers in, it reminds us how necessary it is that we have a mediator. No one, as far as the brothers were concerned, was left alive to plead their case and secure the peace between themselves and what they deserved, between themselves and Joseph. He is the one they had so egregiously wronged, and they knew in their hearts they were guilty. Who would stand between? Now, this speaks the, the anguish that comes through in the testimony of the brothers speaks to the human soul and the condition that this fallen world has left us in. Consider 1 Timothy 2. Turn there if you have your scriptures with you. And we see with this troubling underlying condition of the heart that so plagues the brothers of Joseph, ultimately answered in the promises of the gospel. And this is what Paul proclaims in his epistle to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5. He says, there is, no God, or there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, as I said, 
this guilt that was projected onto Joseph, and they stood worthy of condemnation and destruction and judgment, the brothers did. What they were crying out for was a mediator, and they desperately send this message along. But their heart spoke to a need that could only ultimately sufficiently be satisfied, not in a patriarch who would die, not in even the goodwill of their brother who might forgive and then die. But, how, but yet there stands this unbridgeable chasm between the Lord and his glory and justice and the sin that they know they're so guilty of. What do they need? They need the one God, the one mediator between God and man, the future covenant son. They need the, the, what will be, what is proclaimed in the testimony and the prophecies of the covenant that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and will remove the stains of guilt from their heart, whose blood will be shed on their behalf. They need Jesus Christ, who himself is a ransom for all, gave himself, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The brothers' hearts were crying out, in desperation for the proper mediator and for the proper time. It would come. It would come in the future. But for now, they needed a message of the gospel and where to place their hope and where to resolve their fears and where to find peace now that the mediator, Jacob, has died and with him the ability to intercede and the fearful circumstance now that nothing stood in between Joseph and his will to avenge if he was so inclined. Now in this event, you may have noticed that once again the brothers fulfill the word of God despite themselves. You know, Joseph's story opens in chapter 37 with two distinct prophetic dreams, and they set the course for his entire story. And now, in a perfect loop and arc, those uh, in, when he was 17 years old, and when his story is picked up upon in the record, those dreams come to the, perhaps their most dramatic fulfillment now. He, kids, you remember the two dreams? In the one, there were the sheaves of grain, and in the other, there were stars. And what did the sheaves of grain and one of the stars of sun and moon do? They all did something. Remember? That's right. They bowed down. Joseph sees 11 sheaves of grain representing his brothers, bowing before his sheep in the center, representing this moment in the future. And then likewise, even his father and mother included symbolically in the next dream as these celestial bodies bow before him as well. Now at the close of the record of his life, we see these dreams fulfilled yet again. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of, God of, your fa- of the God of your father. Verse 18, as the brothers express this penitent heart, they also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. The word of God has come to pass. Now, ironically, even in the bowing of the brothers before Jacob or before Joseph in this instance is a testimony of the surety of the word of God. In other words, just as sure as the prophecy was to the brothers that in spite of yourselves and how much you hate and resent your brother, you will bow before him one day. So the surety of the covenant holding forth a sacrifice for your sins in the future will also come to pass. This word of God came to pass in spite of themselves. God used their very sin and the very desperate guilt that they were in and the posture and position of Joseph to accomplish his word in spite of their sin and in some ways because of their sin. Joseph recognizes this and testifies to his brothers of the same. 
The account of Joseph's life opens with these prophetic dreams, 37, 5 through 10. And now, as his biography closes once again, these dreams are confirmed in spectacular fulfillment. The word of God is coming to pass, and it will come to pass in the future. This event anticipates prophecies of Jesus' universal authority acknowledged as well. In other words, Joseph had this promise that in your family, in so many words, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to your rule. This was a foreshadowing of an event that was yet to come and, it's, and reach its substantial fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, 23, Romans 14, 11, and let, re, let me read to you Philippians 2, 11 and 12. You can turn there if you like. In Philippians 2, 11 and 12, this is that great hymn to Christ in Latin that's come to be known as the Carmen Christi. It speaks of the work of Jesus, which parallels in so many ways Joseph who prefigured him. And in this song of exaltation and praise, we read the following in verses 5 and 6. Let me see if I have the right uh, passage here. In verses 11 and 12. And every tongue, let me back up, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, God is highly exalted. Now, I could, I could back up. These parallels are just striking. And being found, verse 8, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we could say it this way, as we compare these two, the shape of redemption in the prefiguring of Joseph's story and in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, even as Joseph was humbled and brought low, condemned and, uh, and falsely accused, and in prison, and as good as dead in, this, in, in his incarceration in Egypt. Yet there would come a day, a resurrection event, so to speak, where he would rise to rule. And those who once hated him, and were his bitter rivals, and the, who resented him so, his greatest enemies, his brothers, one day in spite of themselves, despite themselves, would bow before Joseph. This was a miracle that God accomplished in time in spite of the sin of the people. And it was a prefiguring of the assurance of the covenant to come. There would be another that would have grant and have the power and capacity to forgive. Because he took in himself, absorbed the abuses of those who hated him so. And as the gospel unfolds in time, there comes this moment where knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In spite of their sinful resentment against him, in spite of their rebellious hearts. And in part because of these very things, they know that they stand before him guilty and so they cry out, save me. These are the pictures that Joseph's brothers are playing out in their desperation. They don't yet see the big picture, but Joseph will speak to them God's greater purposes. Yet in these very events is a picture of the hope of their own future. Joseph's brothers bow before him in acknowledgement, not just that he is the king of the region, but he has the authority to avenge their sins as well. This is how we are to appeal to Jesus and to approach him. When confronted with the gospel, who do we most relate to in the story? Are we Joseph, the hero who will arise? Or are we Joseph's brothers who come to a point 
of acknowledgement of our guilt and resentment, rebellion against the Lord, and the one who we once were enemies with, we now acknowledge as our only possible Savior and plead before him for mercy and bow before the authority of Jesus. He alone, because he's the one we've sinned against, has the power to grant forgiveness. And he does so gloriously grant it, absorbing in himself the abuses and the transgressions of his people, and to take in himself the punishment that sin deserves so as to grant them grace and forgiveness. This is the last word of Genesis. This is the last word of the gospel. And this is the last word of the Bible that compels the saints to cry out in the book of Revelation, glory forever to the lamb that was slain. The lamb who was abused, who received the penalty of, the just, of a just God in his own broken body and shed blood is worthy of our praise because he, by his mercy alone, has granted us forgiveness. The bend of the book of Genesis closes with this appeal to mercy, where in spite of the intercession of Jacob lost and no mediator obviously to be found, and despite themselves, brothers bowing before the one who has authority to condemn or to forgive, they receive grace, the last word in the book of Genesis. Secondly, an assurance of pardon. An assurance of pardon, that is, an acknowledgement by Joseph, who had the power to hold the sins against him or to grant forgiveness. This assurance is given to them so far as it's in his power to do so, but it represents and symbolizes much more. Joseph weeps when his brothers come to him, illustrating his heart is not for vengeance, but his heart is to trust in the justice of God and is instead to extend forgiveness. Joseph said to them, verse 19, Do not fear, from I in the place of God? Joseph is preaching to his brothers. If they would heed his words, I trust they did. If they would heed his words, it would reset their frame of mind. It would proclaim truth to them that they in their sin had been blind to thus far. Verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And again, he says, 21, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph extends to his brothers the assurance of his forgiveness. He grants to them a pardon, so to speak. Joseph's response is grounded in three things. Number one, the fear of the Lord. Number two, heaven's perspective. And number three, the glory of grace, the fear of the Lord. Am I in the place of God? Joseph said to them, do not fear. In so many words, why? Because I fear the Lord. I understand the difference between vengeance and justice. And though I have in the natural the ability to, uh, to command the force of the Egyptian government to avenge myself, I refuse to do it. Why? Not because um, our father, who I once respected, is dead and he can't see me now, so, so I, uh, um, or my father's still alive, and so on his account and respect for him, I'll wait until he's dead to do so. No, because I fear something greater than Jacob. Who does he fear? He fears the Lord. He fears Yahweh. Am I in the place of God? The answer is no. These things are in God's hands, and I refuse, I will not, presumptively, step into his shoes. Now you think of his position, Joseph. 
in this culture, he would have been celebrated by all of society in his official status as ruling, in fact, as a god. Not only would the temptation of taking matters into your own hands come with the throne, but even the expectation of the society. Rule as God. That's who you are. That would be the pressure or the expectation in Egyptian, under the Egyptian culture such as it was. His brothers now well recognize their fate is in his hands. But the question is, how did Joseph view his own status as a ruler? Though surrounded by the temptation and expectation of power, Joseph feared God more than his desire to manipulate the fears of others. By the way, a lesson for anyone in authority today. How convenient is the fear of the population? What a useful tool if your goal is to manipulate in some Machiavellian way, you know, the people to your own ends. Politicians and leaders exploit the fears of the people to their own selfish advantage all the time. And I need not share with you too many examples because I know many of them will come to your mind immediately as I say this. Once you have the ability to use people's fears to your advantage and in some cases against them, that represents a lust or a satisfying lust for power and what it might grant you that few can resist if they are so inclined. What can stand between this temptation to manipulate others based on their fears and the unjust authority of a ruler? Well, the fear of the Lord. This is why Moses would go on to say, in large part, codifying the example that Joseph set, that those who are qualified to lead and rule three things. They must fear God, they must not take a bribe, and they must be faithful. Is that the third one? I'm not quite sure. Speaking off the top, they must uh, be faithful to the task. They must fear God, not take a bribe. And, and in this, these ideals are the character qualities necessary for leadership. And Joseph modeled these. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of godly rule. And the fear of the Lord is what gave Joseph the grounding of his response to his brothers and the perspective that allowed him to extend grace rather than vengeance in this case. Will the fear of God overcome the impulse to capitalize on the fear of others? Yes, it will. And this is an example of it. In evidence, this is in evidence as Joseph refuses to act presumptuously in the place of God. The scriptures go on to say in Deuteronomy 32, 35 and Romans 12, 19, the, uh, from the perspective of God himself from Yahweh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And this is a message um, in the life and ministry of Joseph that even preceded these words by, that were spoken by Moses. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so Joseph says, do not fear, am I in the place of God? So far as it depends on me, I trust him and, and extend to you grace and forgiveness instead of retribution for what you have done to me. So this assurance of pardon, Joseph's response is grounded in the fear of the Lord. By the way, if we, we can apply this to our own lives, every one of us is not unfamiliar in a sinful world of injustice and abuse and wrongs that have been committed, in many cases, extreme and egregious against us. In a godly system of government, by the way, as I mentioned before, the sword, not born in vain, 
is a ministry to deliver the individual from the burden of justice. So that weight of I have to avenge the sins against me is mercifully taken by a just government on your behalf. And this is, speaks to what I was saying before, the difference between justice and vengeance. However, when society breaks down, and the, the, this is why it's so important that the ministry of justice, the government, follow the law of God, because when that system breaks down and justice is not forthcoming, we might struggle once again with that burden, and it may eat up our souls and cause us just great harm to, our, to, our, uh, to ourselves as we stress and anxiously fear what might happen to us or there's this lack of closure because our sins against us have not been properly dealt with. So where do we find freedom from this? Well, we can have faith that God will avenge us, that God in his righteousness, his perfect knowledge and perfect time, the fear of the Lord delivers us from the burden of vengeance. The fear of the Lord is the first thing that grants us the power to forgive because it trusts that we can delegate to our sovereign God the duty and timing of his justice. That's not to say we are never to act on his behalf, like I said before, but it is to understand insofar as we are limited, he is not. And if we fear and, re and respect that, ultimately the great judgment day uh, that we look forward to when everything will be balanced perfectly according, according to God's plan is a necessary doctrine to set us free from the anxiety of injustice in the meantime. So Joseph models this. The second thing that his response is grounded in is heaven's perspective, if you will. The big picture of God's purposes. Providence, as we theologically identify it. This is a perfect verse to illustrate the glories of God's providential plan, verse 20. It is a theme for the book of Genesis. It is a theme for the gospel and all of the scriptures. In God's redemptive plan unfolding in history, we see this over and over. And if he gives us that heaven's eye view, we see it in our own lives too. Paul, again, will reiterate this in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 20, uh, Joseph says it this way. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the vantage point of heaven. God's purposes, in spite of sin, hardship, fallenness, and everything that has afflicted the world due to the consequences of the fall. God will not be mocked. God will yet be glorified. And he will use the enemy's own tools and means and devastation and brokenness against him. From the ashes of man's sin will arise a Messiah who will justify. And from the crimes, worst of all, slain God's only Son, will come the very means of redemption to spare those who place their faith in Him. And so when the centurion responsible for the death of Jesus in part stands with that hammer, that tools of crucifixion within his grasp, at least in his direction, he looks up at this cross, this bleeding, dying man, and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. In that moment, we can see how he himself, his eyes were open, that God can use the most egregious sins, the slaughter of his Son made flesh to ransom a people. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that many lives should be spared. This is a message of the gospel, and we see it prefigured in Joseph's own ministry. This is heaven's perspective. 
The covenant family was spared during this time of famine, but not just them. All the world that was threatened by this uh, great crisis and catastrophe was spared. Many lives were spared on account of Joseph, and God used the sin of the brothers to put him in position to spare the world, to bring salvation from famine to the known world. This, by the way, is the frame of mind that enabled Joseph's response. The fear of God and the greater purposes of his providence. Take this and apply it in your own soul. The fear of God and the greater purposes of his providence is the frame of mind that will allow you to navigate the most egregious difficulties in this life. You see, here's an application. Most of our decision-making, we kind of have a filter, our default filter in our minds is our perception of our own self-interest. So we tend to process how we perceive our own self-interest, how will this benefit me, benefit my family, what's best in light of these. What Joseph teaches in his example is to insert another filter, if you will. What would that filter be? Let us be inspired by Joseph to add the heaven's perspective filter to our decision-making. So before we overreact, before we jump to conclusions, even under the weight of the deepest and darkest trials, consider this question. How might God use this situation for good, and how might I participate in that? How might God use this situation for good, And how might I participate in that? This is that heaven's perspective, that acknowledgement of the power and the glory of God, the fear of him and his providence that Joseph so so gloriously models here in his example. Fear driven um, by what they did in... Oh, oh, uh, let me leave that thought for a moment. So this, just to close, this heaven's perspective is a theme statement transcending this occasion. It's fitting for the book of Genesis as a huge idea and a fitting last word. God's will, in spite of man's sin, working even in spite of these conditions for his ultimate purposes. This is a theme that will continue through every era of covenant history and will reach its climax at the cross. And in this, this third perspective is the glory of grace revealed. Joseph wept before his brothers in a demonstration of his heart priorities. Uh, So there was a huge test, the opportunity to avenge himself. Imagine if that root of bitterness had been stewing within his soul for however many years now, decades. Uh, He would not weep, but he would rejoice at the opportunity to take matters in his own hands, restrained in part because of the fear of his father or by the honor of his father. He would now give his brothers his just desserts. But no, that root of bitterness had not found fertile soil in Joseph's soul. Instead, His heart and compassion extended to his brothers was obvious in his weeping as they came before him. This, the great second in command, sovereign who had spared the world from famine, is crying at the thought that his brothers' souls would be tortured because they would fear that he would kill them on account of their sins against him or otherwise. Joseph said to them, Am I in the place of God? Do not fear. Verse 21, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the superior glory of grace shining through. Joseph wept before his brothers as a demonstration of his heart priorities. By the way, the tests of life reveal the priorities of our heart. When the tests of life come, 
and you find resentment bubbling to the surface, there's opportunity there to repent. If you struggle with anger and bitterness and the intensity of the situation you're going through brings it to the surface, uh, consider that God turning up the temperature on the refining fire of circumstance to grant you opportunity to, by His grace, repent. That is to change out the priorities of your heart. The opportunity for vengeance or, uh, was here, but Joseph chose to feature the superior glory of grace. When Joseph and his, when his brothers took advantage, uh, or we think about it this way, when Joseph was 17, his brothers took advantage of an opportunity to act on their resentment. Remember, they hated him. They're jealous of him. So his father favored him. When they took advantage, Joseph's brothers did, of an opportunity to act on their own resentment of Joseph, far from the watchful gaze of their father. And the root of the brothers' fear is they projected this onto Joseph. Now they feared that he would do the same. Jacob was dead. So now far from the watchful gaze of their father, what might Joseph do to them? You see, their fear was driven by what they did when they were in his shoes. What a testimony when Joseph acts according to a different heart priority entirely. Mercy triumphs over justice. His actions testify to a different mindset. And Joseph recognized the power of grace. And even though, and it spoke so powerfully, it spoke so powerfully given the position that he was in. He had the power within his grasp to do something about his brother's sin so that when he extended grace, that superior glory was all the greater, this paradox of forgiveness we mentioned before. Let us close with a third note as Genesis, the chapter of Genesis, the last chapter of Genesis is concluding. Genesis closes with this appeal for mercy, 15 through 18, this assurance of pardon, 19 through 21. And then in the context, we have featured in Scripture the last patriarch. Now, I don't know how much time you've given to this, and I hadn't given much time and thought to this uh, until recently in studying the book of Genesis and painstakingly working through it. This is a significant moment. This is the end of an epoch, the end of an era. There, with the death of the last patriarch, so dies the testimony of the covenant and the father leader who will bear forth that beacon as an organizing hope and a directing leadership role for the family and for the covenant. And we don't hear nothing for 400 years after this until the book of Exodus opens. So as the last patriarch dies, we wait. Verse 26, last verse of Genesis 50. So Joseph died being 110 years old. He served as something of a patriarch, we might think. Technically, Jacob was probably the last one. But Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the covenant family. A gigantic, now what? We look to Joseph. He was such an example to us of godliness. He feared the Lord. He ruled in righteousness. He held the family together. He proclaimed and reminded us of the terms of covenant. Jacob, God, had visited him. He had spoken to us his word. Who now will lead us? Who now will we turn to? As the patriarch, there was a cry. There was a cry for priesthood. There was a cry for a prophet. There was a cry for a king, priesthood. With Jacob's death, the brother's guilt and the brother's guilt dramatically illustrate 
uh, something. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews 7, 23. Jacob's death and the brother's guilt dramatically illustrate the need for a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Jacob's mediation is insufficient. Who will bleed their case after he dies? You see in the text here, this story illustrates a cry in humanity, deep within the soul of mankind, for an intercessor. Jacob, the last living intercessor between us and the judgment we deserve, has died. There's a cry for priesthood. With the last patriarch, the promise of priesthood appears to be threatened, at least to the short-sighted view. Save the promises of the covenant. And among the promises of the covenant were this, Hebrews, so eloquently speaks of the fulfillment. Verse 23, For the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hallelujah. Jacob dies, and with him, the hope of intercession. Joseph will not avenge us so long as our father is alive. But with the death of Jacob, so dies the intercessor. And this cry for a priesthood, the promise of the covenant is, there is going to arise a priest who will let, never die. And so he will always live to make intercession for you. Remember, the guilt of the brothers is projected upon Joseph, but the real situation was their guilt before the Lord. In order to be reconciled to him and for God to extend the grace, like Joseph does in this picture, they need a priesthood who never dies. They need an intercessor to make peace, to stand between a mediator who will ever live to intercede for them. And he's coming. He's coming. and His name is Jesus Christ. So the death of the patriarch leaves this hole in the soul, so to speak, in this cry for priesthood. But what happens as the next chapter of the scriptures unfold, symbolically, the priesthood will be established in and through the ministry of Moses. There's no accident here that this cry for priesthood closes with this waiting at the end of Genesis, and then the establishment of the symbolic priesthood then is initiated very soon in the text as the next chapters of Exodus unfold. With the last patriarch, so dies the priest. And then this cry, this cry will be answered in time. Furthermore, a cry for a prophet. As I mentioned, the last word in Genesis um, is associated with these dreams fulfilled. These dreams were the word of God, sovereign, divine, direct revelation to Joseph. And with that word confirmed at the close here of the book of Genesis, so is the last word of the direct revelation to the people of God. And then what happens? Four centuries of waiting, a cry for a prophet. Does this pattern strike you as familiar? Last words of Malachi as they appear in the canon close. And there's this cry uh, and there's this promise that a future one like Elijah would arise. But then what? Four centuries of waiting until one man is born. His name, John the Baptist. When Jesus says of John the Baptist, not since Moses has a prophet this great arisen, can you see the parallels? Just as 400 years passed and then the word of God through the prophet Moses 
interjected with hope once again for the covenant people, crying out for the word of the Lord. So at the end of the Old Testament era, that silence was broken by one John the Baptist, the great prophet who arose in God's perfect time to say, the Messiah is here. Hallelujah. So the shape of history past is preparing us for the advent of the Messiah. This cry for priesthood, this cry for prophet will be fulfilled. And a partial fulfillment will be the arising of Moses as God's deliverer for the people who will himself will serve in part symbolically as priest at times. And then through him, the priesthood symbolically will be established. And finally, with the last patriarch, implicitly in the text is this cry, not for, just for a priest, not just for a prophet, but also for a king. Like Melchizedek before him, Genesis 14, 17 through 20, Joseph's reign serves to foreshadow the great covenant son to come, a priest king. That priest king Melchizedek, that is king of Salem, priest of God most high, was the shadowy picture of hope and a covenant individual who will satisfy the terms that are needed to establish certainty and assurance and pardon and covenant renewal. And Joseph served in part as this, as this priest king as well. Different times in his administration stood for the hope that a great mediator will one day restore the covenant hope lost in Adam. And though Joseph had the power to judge his brothers, crimes against him, he took their abuse, he suffered their iniquity upon himself without retribution, granting forgiveness instead, foreshadowing the ministry of who? There would be another priest king who would arise would take the abuses of his people in himself and grant to them forgiveness instead of judgment because God had judged him on the cross of Calvary. The family line of the future Messiah was in fact secured in part by Joseph's ministry of forgiveness. Because Joseph forgave his brothers, he did not kill Judah which he might have and with Judah then would have died the legacy of the Messiah. But Joseph, in taking godly action such as he did, spared the covenant family, speaking of one who would spare the covenant family to come. Following Genesis, the stage is set in history, in further history, amplifying this cry as Exodus opens under the rule of a tyrant king who does not know the ministry of Joseph. So in Exodus 1.8, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And we know of his tyranny, if you're familiar at all, with the exile in Egypt and the slavery of God's people. And there was a cry bubbling within the surface. There was a memory, the people of God in part, of a great and righteous ruler. And there was uh, this cry. Then there was this heart yearning for those who had faith, for another priest king to arrive, for a deliverer to come. So with the last patriarch... A page in history is turning. It sets the stage in expectation for what is to come. And God's purposes continue to unfold as the scriptures move forward. And we have the vantage point of the culmination of history in Jesus Christ, bringing all of these things to fulfillment in himself. With this, we are greatly encouraged, even as, as the, the uh, pages of Genesis close with a note of sadness. Let us rejoice that these words have been fulfilled as we close in prayer this morning. We thank you, Father, for the glories of redemption revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As we have studied at some length the scriptures in this first book of the canon, 
We pray that you would write upon their soul, our souls, Lord, the significance of what we've learned there, that our lives might be greatly encouraged and able to walk more faithful to you and appreciation and worship for our Messiah fulfilling these pictures, Lord, would be even more forthcoming from we, your people. And all this, I pray, the lost would bow their knee before Jesus Christ. The church would be equipped to shine for him, to hold out hope in light of what he has done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.